From the New York offices of Oxford University Press, this is the Oxford Comment, a monthly podcast featuring insights from Oxford University Press authors, editors, and more. My name is Sarah, multimedia producer and your host for this episode. Here in New York, the days are getting shorter and chillier. I'm seeing pumpkin spice drinks in every hand. It's time for Halloween. I'm convinced that there's more to this holiday than sweet treats and costumes, so I asked some experts for their thoughts on a few Halloween-related topics. Let's start with word origins. Catherine Connor Martin, head of U.S. Dictionaries, who you may remember from our mullet mystery episode, joined me in the studio to chat about the language of Halloween. It turns out that there's been a lot of mixing and mutation. In the language of Halloween, but also in the practice of Halloween, there is a really interesting interplay between the British Isles and America. And the more that you look into it, you see, just like with the English language itself, that there are, things get borrowed, into things cross the Atlantic, they come into, into the United States, mix up and amalgamated different ways, and then get re-imported into the British Isles where they are regarded as horrible Americanisms that are destroying our culture. <laughs> so it was, it was really surprising to me, and as I spent t- like spending time in Europe, to realize yeah. that Halloween is often regarded as an American holiday, really? just as American as Thanksgiving. So, in fact, the word Halloween originated in Scotland as a contraction of all hollows even. And just the way that Christmas Eve is the night before Christmas, All Hallows Eve is the night before All All Hallows Day, which is another word for All Saints Day. So if you look at the calendar, November begins with two holidays on the Christian calendar, All Saints Day on the 1st and All Souls Day on the 2nd. But historically, November 1st also corresponds with one of the main four seasonal feasts of the pre-Christian Celtic calendar. And so it's thought that some of the practices associated with Halloween may have originated in conjunction with Samhain. And in the Celtic parts of the British Isles, there is this very, there's this connection and um, a, a rich folklore that informs traditional celebrations of Halloween and that somehow went over to America and got strangely changed and corrupted and now is seen again with, um, in the form of lots of orange and black plastic banners and things like that. Then we got onto the topic of jack-o'-lanterns, and Catherine told me a surprising fact. Jack-o'-lanterns were not always made out of pumpkins. One of the things that really surprised me as being a distinction between uh, British and American Halloween is the jack-o'-lantern because it had never occurred to me before I looked into this that a jack-o'-lantern was anything other than a carved pumpkin. But in the British Isles, it was originally a carved turnip. (laughs) Um, And you can see there's the pumpkin has many advantages over the turnip, not least that you don't really have, you just have to grab the seeds, whereas the turnip has to be painstakingly (laughs) carved out by hand. But turnips are much creepier. So if you go and Google a turnip jack-o'-lantern, you will be horrified. (laughs) Jack-o'-lantern is also really interesting. Not only, it's not only the history of the thing, but also the history of the word, because the earliest meaning in the 17th century was just a man carrying a lantern, like a night watchman. Mm -hmm. And Jack in that way just means man, like in Jack of all trades. So Jack of the lantern, Jack-o'-lantern. Then it came to um, be used to refer to this 
mysterious floating light seen by travelers at night. So this was a part, a big part of popular folklore, this idea that there are these floating lights that you would see in the wilderness at night. And they were called will-o'-the-wisp, or also ignis fatuus in, in Latin, but jack-o'-lantern was another word for those. Um, and it's n- the OED doesn't record jack-o'-lantern being used to refer to a carved vegetable lantern until 1837. And it's first attested in a Nathaniel Hawthorne story, uh, The Great Carbuncle, in Twice Told Tales. Uh, and it's a simile, so he says hide it, meaning this big, bright jewel, under thy cloak, sayst thou, why it will gleam through the holes and make thee look like a jack-o'-lantern. So there, it's very clear that the jack-o'-lantern that he's thinking of must be a lantern that has holes in it. But it's not clear what it's made out of. So it could have been a turnip or a pumpkin. (laughs) No one knows. Um, And even in the United States, you saw references to different kinds of vegetables in the 19th century, but... um, Now I think we can emphatically say it's always a pumpkin here. And what about that sacred pastime, trick-or-treating? Turns out kids used to actually perform for their treats. So the earliest evidence we know of for the term trick-or-treating comes from a Canadian newspaper in 1927, um, and it's describing what the article seems to suggest is a novel thing that's happening um, in Canada, um, in this one town, which is that um, kids are go around to all the houses and threaten to perform a prank unless they're given candy, and they say trick or treat, giving the people at the house the option of whether they want to give them a treat or suffer the consequences. Um, and so, and that really does seem to be a new thing in the early 20th century and in North America. And it spread like wildfire after that 1937 example by the mid-20th century. It's just everywhere. That's really new, but there are similar traditions in various places in the, in the British Isles where adults or children would go around to houses giving some sort of performance, mm-hmm. and then they would receive food as a reward. And those things happened at various times of the year, but one of the times of the year was um, the period around what is now Halloween. In some parts of England, it was called souling, and it took place on the eve of All Souls Day, which would have been actually the night of November 1st. And it was also known, and especially in Scotland, is still known as guising from the word disguise with reference to the fact that you would put on a costume. People note that it's a less generous idea. So instead of giving something in exchange for a tip of a treat, you are threatening them. Though I would argue that it's very rare today that there's anything behind the threat. Really, trick-or-treat has lost all of its literal meaning. Right. It's just the thing that you say yeah. on Halloween. I think I feel like it is still more of a performance because you open the door and it's like they've dressed up for you and, you know, it's adorable and, you know, you're enjoying it. Oh, here's the candy. <laughs> yes. I, 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 as a person with young children, I would tend to, that's how I see it too, that sort of like they, they and, it, and it's actually pretty hard for a five-year-old to say trick-or-treat. You really have to nudge them a lot. So it would be hard for them to give more of a performance than ringing the doorbell and it's saying true. it. The conversation turned to the language of the undead or more specifically, the monsters that have been haunting pop culture recently, vampires and zombies. In contemporary popular culture, there are really only a few big hitters that, that dominate, yeah. um, which are like vampires, zombies, and to a lesser extent, werewolves, mummies, and Frankenstein's monsters. And looking into the origins of those names, one thing that really struck me was that, with the exception of werewolf, 
none of those words would have been available to English speakers in Shakespeare's time. They all came in the 18th century or later. That seemed really striking because I think now we have a very rich and continually growing folklore about those things. And we don't think of folklore as being a contemporary phenomenon. It's something of the past. But the associations, connotations, and sort of specific facts about associated with zombies and vampires are very much alive and changing and growing all the time today through movies and television and books. And so, um, and we can see that in how, how the words are used. Zombie and vampire, I would argue, are, when we think about the undead, that, those are the undead that yeah. we think about. And they are both reanimated corpses of a, of a type, but of very different types. So how can you have moving dead bodies but they have such vastly different implications. Um, and, and you see that in the constellation of usages. Vampire um, comes to us from, uh, via French from Hungarian, um, a bloodsucker, obviously. And um, it's, even the earliest use in, of the word in English is metaphorical, and it refers to a person who preys ruthlessly on others because originally vampires were seen as drinking blood while the victim slept. By the early 20th century, it comes to refer specifically to a woman who's mm -hmm. preying upon men with her right. sex appeal. Um, and that's where we get the word vamp from, like in silent, with reference yeah. to silent film figures as a, a, a femme fatale. Um, but it also, even when we're not talking about women, there is this idea that vampires are sexy and erotic yes. and intelligent and basically in every way the opposite of what a zombie is. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, so zombie, very different entrance into the language too. It comes from West African languages and comes to the Americas via the forced migration of enslaved people. Mm -hmm. It first is recorded in English in the early 19th century in Brazilian context and uh, with reference to a snake deity, but by the late 19th century, it's being used in the southern United States to refer to different kinds of phantoms or spirits of the dead, not necessarily specifically the soulless walking corpse. Okay. But that, that comes along, and in the 20th century, it leads to, there, there's an idea of kind of like a voodoo zombie where it's a reanimated corpse who's serving someone's will. Mm -hmm. So there's this notion of them lacking agency, right. um, and it becomes a term of disparagement, referring to anyone who's regarded as apathetic and dull or stupid. Okay. But then in Canada during the Second World War, it's specifically used to mean people who were conscripted to work in the home de to serve in the home defense rather than volunteering to serve overseas. So the ones who volunteered, they were brave. Uh, um, they had agency. The ones who stayed home were zombies. Um, and then, of course, it's the name of a cocktail with the idea that it would make you presumably so, like, become insensible. Um, <laughs> But it's not until, I think, the 1980s and the horror movies of the 1980s that you have this idea of the zombie horde. Yes. Suddenly there's a multitude of zombies, yeah. and it's this shambling mass. Right. Um, and that's the, the dominant association today. It's taken on this use in computing where it's, it's a computer that's been hacked so that it can be mobilized along with others to engage in malicious acts. If you look at um, a corpus, at a sample of the English language, you see this where when, we're, when you look at the word zombie, it's associated with horde, plague, infestation, apocalypse. Mm -hmm. 
shamble, brainwash, mindless, <laughs> and all of those kinds right. of notions, whereas um, the vampires are associated with erotica. <laughs> um, so same origin, dead person in grave, very different outcome, and right. very different metaphorical possibilities. And I think recently the notion of the zombie becomes associated with fears of pandemics. Yes. And so that's where you see like epidemic and outbreak, which that's different than the traditional zombie. It's not necessarily a reanimated corpse. It's like a kind of sickness that makes you right. into a zombie. And that seems to be a really common way yeah. that we're seeing zombie creation developing today. Yeah, it's a very modern fear, I think. Yeah, that's a very good point. And I guess that's true of the monsters of any time is that they are... They're, yeah. they're always going to build on what you're afraid of. Yeah. Um, sexuality. Yeah. <laughs> Got that covered. Um, or, uh, yeah, mass pandemic death. If you listen to our mullet mystery episode, you'll know all about the OED's public appeals. But just in case you've forgotten, the OED sends out public appeals for words whose origins are a little murky. Catherine revealed a new public appeal for the word paranormal. We have a program at the OED called the OED Appeals, where mm -hmm. sometimes we'll look at an entry that we have that we're certain there must be earlier evidence of, um, and we ask the public if they can help us find the earlier evidence that we think should exist. One word that we've recently identified um, as being worthy of an appeal is the word paranormal, um, the adjective denoting phenomena outside the scope scope of the known laws of nature or of normal scientific understanding. And astonishingly, since this seems to me as a modern English speaker like just a totally normal word of core English, okay. our first example is from 1920. Oh. And it's from um, a dictionary, Webster's New International Dictionary. And when your first example for a word is in a dictionary, it almost goes without saying that that can't be the first actual use of the word because right. the people who put it in the dictionary must have gotten it from somewhere. So we feel pretty certain that there's earlier evidence of the word paranormal out there, and we're hoping that um, people will be able to uh, look in books and uh, databases and help us find it. And you can help the OED sleuth their way through this paranormal mystery. The website for OED Public Appeals is public.oed.com forward slash appeals. My conversation with Catherine got me thinking about pop culture monsters, and actually zombies in particular. Catherine spoke about how we've changed and added to the folklore and mythology behind words like zombie. How and why did this evolution of the zombie occur? I called up Greg Garrett, who you might remember from our episode all about his book Entertaining Judgment which had a whole chapter dedicated to the undead. Well, Greg has another book on the way, and it's all about the zombie apocalypse, so he's pretty knowledgeable about this subject. We've actually made a, a change in the folklore just, you know, since 1968 or so, when George Romero uh, made Night of the Living Dead. Because before that, when people used the word zombie, mostly they were talking about this thing from uh, the Caribbean, this... A sort of idea of people who were enslaved in a kind of living death, but were not actually dead. But in 1968, we get Night of the Living Dead, and we get this sort of archetypal zombie. And so usually when we talk about zombies, we're talking about Romero zombies in the same way that when we talk about vampires, usually we're talking about Stoker vampires. Mm -hmm. And uh, so this, this Night of the Living Dead uh, zombie is a uh, 
a part of a kind of overarching narrative of the apocalypse. It's like this is the end of the world. Everything has fallen apart. Greg also explained that the zombie apocalypse is directly related to our modern day anxieties. Yeah. So in a, in a lot of the、uh, the zombie stories post Romero. There is some sort of scientific <laughs> explanation,、right. you know. It's radiation from space, or it's a virus, and it, it fits really nicely with a lot of our kind of contemporary concerns, you know. So when we're worried about pandemics, you know,、um, a year or so back, we were all of us kind of worried about Ebola. You know, somebody was going to get on a plane with Ebola and travel to the other side of the world, and we were all going to be in danger. I think that that is one of the The really like important anxieties that we wrestle with is you know disease and destruction and this idea that、um, our survival is in a lot of ways not necessarily under our own control. The zombie story seems to be most important in times of real unrest,、mm-hmm. and I think that's partly why we see George Romero kind of creating this archetype in 1968, which is this really unsettled time in American history. And I think, like any kind of story genre, the zombie story goes in and out of fashion, depending on how much we need it to kind of make sense of the the current surroundings. I've always wondered about the specific evolution in the speed of zombies, the transition from slow shamblers to rabid animalistic zombies that can move faster than a human. Greg broke it down for me. I think one of the things that it reflects. Is the kind of sense that we have, especially post nine eleven, that in practically every avenue of our lives there are things that are falling apart. The shambling zombie is scary enough, and it sort of represents this kind of slow, inexorable, you know, creeping destruction. But you know, I look at our lives now, and we have you know collapse of financial markets and the kind of pandemic scares that we talked about, and war and Uh, you know,、uh, unrest overseas and domestic unrest, and you know our own personal unrest. You know, whatever's happening in our lives, spiritually, emotionally, and I think in some ways the the speeded up zombies kind of reflect this sense that that doom doesn't seem to be slowly creeping anymore.、Mm-hmm. Um, it's like we are going to be lucky to get out of this alive. Yeah. Another plot point that I've seen crop up in quite a few representations of the zombie apocalypse. Is having to see loved ones transform into zombies. My favorite representation of it is in the British romantic zombie comedy *Shaun of the Dead*,、mm-hmm. where Shaun,、uh, Shaun's、uh, mother, gets bitten, and they actually have this sort of ontological argument about, you know, at what point is she going to become a zombie? When is she not your mom anymore?、Right. Which I think is one of the kind of really interesting philosophical and spiritual questions that gets addressed in zombie stories. Um, you know, you've got a character in The Walking Dead who keeps his daughter, his zombified daughter, close by, and so there's this sort of question: you know, when do the people that you love stop existing? When when are they not there anymore?、Right. Um, so, I mean, it brings up these sort of interesting end of life ethical questions, these spiritual questions,、um, and the way that Shaun of the Dead deals with it is kind of funny. Sean's best friend has been turned into a zombie, but they're still playing video games together, and it's almost like you know they're not actually that different than they were before. And that's one of the kind of tropes of the zombie movie as well. That a lot of us are kind of caught in this walking death.、Um, that we're you know kind of caught up in these consumerist lives. George Romero's Dawn of the Dead, 
uh, sort of shows the zombies and the human beings congregating in the mall mm-hmm. uh, where, you know, we just sort of all shuffle around and buy stuff. I read a really nice critical piece about The Walking Dead that said, you know, the zombies are not The Walking Dead. Uh, it's, it's the humans mm-hmm. who are The Walking Dead. So I, I love the way that the, the zombie apocalypse opens up all of these possibilities for us to wrestle with real-life issues. Continuing this idea of altering the language and customs of Halloween to fit modern-day beliefs, there are many different types of haunted house, but one in particular, called Hell House, is a fairly recent creation from the U.S. I'd heard about them from a documentary by George Ratliff that was released around 2002. The history of the Hell House stretches back to the 1970s, though, I phoned Jason Bivens, author of Religion of Fear, who is now working on his third book on religion and politics in the U.S. He gave a great summary of what a visit to a hell house entails. Yeah, so um, a hell house is basically a specific kind of Christian theological adaptation of a traditional Halloween haunted house. Um, And it's very self-consciously modeled on the kinds of haunted houses that everybody goes to growing up. The idea... Uh, which, which was kind of begun in the early 1970s by Jerry Falwell. But the Hell House proper, which is not actually named after the Hammer Horror movie, but that's a pretty interesting association. The actual Hell House proper was incorporated in 1995 by an Assemblies of God pastor named Keenan Roberts. So there are a bunch of different models out there. Um, there's the Falwell history, which is called Scare Mare. And that still goes on at Liberty University. There's a Florida operation called Judgment House. Um, There's a Georgia-based operation called Revelation Walk, which is uh, the only outdoor production I'm familiar with. But the basic idea of all of these productions is, is shaped by this sense of American decline. And the belief that these pastors have is that youths are unaware of the perils that they face in everyday life. Um, And the Hell House is designed to be a kind of theatricalization of those perils. So it's a combination of conservative Christian social criticism and conventional frights. So this, the the Hell Houses are sort of unique to American culture, right? Yeah, they're they're internationalized now, but they certainly they certainly are all American in their inception. Oh, okay. And is it is it uh, sort of significant? Its its date of origin, you said, was not that long ago, right? So, if you look, for example, at 1950s conservative Christianity, um, you know, anti-communism and, and things like this would certainly have been a theme. Anti-rock music would have been another theme. But back then, you're going to see a lot more emphasis on pamphlets and radio. Um, Certainly local productions were, were very commonplace, but it's really with kind of the 70s um, explosion of evangelicalism into public life again, which people generally associate with Bill Bright and Kent's Crusade for Christ. That, that's a correct association, but it's really during that period that you begin to see the increased popularity of these kind of alternate entertainments, whether it's Christian music, Christian television, or even Christian Halloween events like this. And yeah, the 90s were, um, I think, a real, a real kind of threshold for, for a lot of the folks involved in the Hell House uh, productions. And so what is the sort of experience of going through a, a Hell House? Most of them actually um, take place in a church basement. Sometimes there are bungalows where Bible study and vacation Bible schools are held. You know, there, there, there are all kinds of ways in which they're actually structured. But 
the vast, vast majority of them take place in the local church itself. And so what happens is you get there, you, you queue up, and you enter a haunted house. And there are all kinds of traditional haunted house signifiers. You know, you're, you're walking through the completely darkened hallway. You feel the cobweb brush spookily across your face. There are ghouls that leap out at you. Um, and, and all of the actors, by the way, are, are not just members of the local congregation. They're all almost always teenagers, the very people who are also understood to constitute the audience, the very mm -hmm. people who are understood to be um, the at-risk population. So you get ghosts and all kinds of spooky stuff, but inevitably they're staged as scenes, um, scenes of particular moral ills. And the most common scenes you encounter are um, recreations and reenactments of an abortion procedure, a gay marriage, um, a liberal professor ranting in a classroom about sex education or evolutionary biology, standard hot-button issues um, that everybody is kind of aware of. But what's really interesting, there's also this incredible attention to technical detail, like in an abortion scene, it's common for folks to actually go to a butcher shop and get entrails and blood that are left over at the end of the day that they can use in the abortion scene. And there's actually a lot of pride taken in, you know, a slick production, uh, a production that even resembles, and, and, and I have to say this is a point of emphasis for Keenan Roberts who came up with the Hell House. The, the more closely a Hell House can resemble a conventional shock horror production value, the more successful it's likely to be in the minds of those who put them on. So there's also, aside from the, the features that I just mentioned, there's this really interesting interface between pop horror and the particulars of this kind of social criticism. Jason then explained what events really popularized Hell Houses. Immediately following Keenan Roberts' um, commercialization of Hell Houses, you know, he, he um, out of the uh, Abundant Life Christian Center in Arvada, Colorado, which is where um, he preached. Um, he, he would actually sell Hell House kits so that people could um, could replicate the productions as he envisioned them. And the scripts and all of the stuff are very detailed. And, and what happened is initially, after this kind of explosion onto the scene in 1995. Roberts appeared on a ton of television shows. He was on CNN, he was on Phil Donahue, and he actually had a lot of very high-profile mainstream media exposure, mm -hmm. uh, something he takes great delight in. Um, but, but I really do think it was with the George Ratliff documentary that you and I both saw. That, that was kind of the big deal. And I think it was the right context for people to start paying attention to that kind of stuff because it's in the George W. Bush years and there's so much... Uh, mostly bad commentary about evangelical politics, um, but there's also been some really excellent research on sort of the cultural history of Halloween itself, um, and that certainly informed my understanding of this particular um, cultural creation. You know, but but the interminglings of kind of um, theatrical fear and American Christianity go back, of course, to the Puritans with their elaborate. And, and extremely detailed and gory poetry and chapbooks and things of this nature um, exploding into the 19th century Gothic literary scene. You know, So it's there at sort of every stage of American religious history. But I think owing to the televisual age, the, um, the, the, the age of accessible mass media, and specifically as we get into the social media age, it's more and more common to see people 
customizing all kinds of entertainment, and, and that's certainly the kind of thing that happens in productions like this as well. So we've heard about customs and language and beliefs surrounding Halloween. What about sounds and music that are unique to the holiday and the horror genre? Sound has a significant impact on the way we experience media. They inform the story just as much as the dialogue or editing. I wanted to learn more about music and sounds that create a creepy ambiance. So I called up Jim Bueller, who co-wrote a textbook called Hearing the Movies, Music and Sound in Film History. I started the conversation by asking him about sound and dissonance. Uh, particularly in the horror film scoring, uh, there's a very common uh, use of things like uh, children chanting and so forth, you know, mm-hmm. doing, like, uh, doing like nursery rhymes or nursery uh, uh, things. Uh, oftentimes that, those uh, come off as being very horrific, at least in part by, because of the context and the way in which they are then kind of set to sound somewhat... Uh, uh, Dean, uh, or they're made somewhat less normal sounding, I guess would be the best way to put that. Like putting it in a different pitch or something. Yeah, or, I mean, you might use dissonance to uh, um, undermine or you might, uh, you might uh, even bring in certain kinds of uh, uh, just noises and so forth um, uh, underneath it. You might put a reverb on it uh, that makes it sound, uh, uh, stretch it out uh, with the sound kind of echoing in the, in the background. So it sounds kind of unnatural in that, for, in that way. Mm-hmm. So there are all kinds of ways of doing that. And I think that is actually one of the things that horror in general tries to play with, uh, with that normal of the paranormal is, you know, one of the things about the paranormal is that it's, it's normal. And so there's this kind of play between giving us mundane reality, mm-hmm. uh, but then also uh, allowing us to start thinking that there's another uh, potential dimension so that every time we're seeing something and hearing something, we're not quite sure, does this belong to the mundane world or does this belong to that uh, kind of supernatural world of the, of the monsters and so forth. And there's something about like the when they use like strange noises that that uh, raises the hair on the back of your neck. I feel like it's like some sort of scientific thing, like the way that the sound is plays through our ears. That that there's some like animalistic instinct for us to react that way. Well, there certainly are certain kinds of sounds that are that way. Uh, at least the research that I've read uh, suggests that there are sounds uh, of that that type, uh, particularly. Um, Sounds that have uh, that are high has have non harmonic a lot of non harmonic uh, uh, partial or inharmonic uh, partials and, and so forth that kind of give you that kind of screechy sound mm-hmm. uh, the the sound of uh, nails on a chalkboard kind of thing uh, and that those kinds of sounds do just kind of like grab our attention uh, one of the things is that high frequency sound um, tends to dissipate uh, much uh, faster. And so uh, when you hear a high-frequency sound, uh, we recognize it as being something that's close. Mm-hmm. Um, so to be able to be close enough to hear a twig snap, for instance, uh, tells us that we are close to something and that there's something there that, of course, made the twig the twig uh, crack. So we start looking around for that. And then if the filmmakers are skillful in, in playing with those kinds of sounds, they can use that off-screen space and our imagination to uh, really cause us to scare ourselves in, in wonderful ways. Of course, in film, there's Foley sound where people will make strange noises with other objects mm-hmm. in order to trick viewers into thinking it's something else. Yeah, well, and I think, uh, you know, I mean, like one of the great tropes of uh, horror film is the long, dark hallway mm-hmm. uh, um, where 
you have your your characters uh, walking down that it doesn't have to be a hallway, but just some kind of some kind of of space that they're going down. And very often in those scenes, what you have is a lot of off screen uh, uh, sounds uh, being uh, made. Uh, another thing that that uh, frequently they'll do is they'll kind of suddenly reduce the sound or bring the sound back to a much more kind of mundane sound just before they kind of have the monster attack. Uh, and then with the monster's attack, there'll be some kind of really sharp musical stinger or something to underscore that kind of quality of the monster, monster showing up there. Then we moved on to music. Are there certain chords that are guaranteed to send a chill down our spines? In, in traditional, uh, say, uh, 18th century, 19th century opera, stage works and whatnot, that diminished chord was oftentimes uh, understood to be a kind of marker of uh, horror and terror and, um, and uh, uh, so forth. Filmmakers today will typically use uh, something, something sharper. Uh, that particular chord there is the, the psycho chord. Okay. Uh, basically, it's a minor triad with the uh, a major seventh uh, added uh, to it, um, and it gives a much uh, sharper uh, kind of dissonance, and partly it's also the way that um, Hermann scores it uh, uh, there to give that particular uh, kind of quality. Uh, but that sharper dissonance uh, uh, there also um, can create this kind of uh, sense of... Uh, of well, again, I'm not sure that horror or terror is exactly quite the right thing, but within a certain kind of context, we can certainly give that that kind of uh, sense to it. I mean, I think that uh, what dissonance does uh, is tells us, uh, or we've coded it in music uh, to tell us that uh, something's unstable, um, and so it's basically telling us that you know there there is uh, something going on, and there's kind of an impel, there's a a, a need for uh, a movement. Skillful composers can then just use that that kind of need for uh, movement to transform that into something like the world awry, the world's uh, you know going off in in a somewhat different kind of uh, of direction. I feel like I've only scratched the surface of Halloween and its related sinister topics. What I did come away with is that Halloween is both deeply rooted in the past and yet constantly evolving. The language, folklore, customs, and atmosphere of the holiday are remixed and reinvented constantly. It's pretty incredible. And now, time for all of my thank yous. Thanks to Catherine Connor Martin. Once again, the OED Appeals website is public.oed.com forward slash appeals. Thanks also to Greg Garrett, who wrote Entertaining Judgment, and his Twitter handle is Greg the Number One Garrett. Thank you to Jason Bivens, author of Religion of Fear, and also to Jim Bueller co-author of Hearing the Movie. His Twitter handle is Jim Bueller. And thanks to you. You can find more episodes of The Oxford Comment on the OUP blog, SoundCloud, and iTunes. However you're spending the holiday, I hope you have a safe yet slightly mysterious Halloween.